Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guests. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to set up a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also, visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com, or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the 9th Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. Why can't we all just get along? I'm sure all of us have probably asked that question from time to time, different situations and different circumstances. But that question becomes a little more serious when the relationships get a little closer. Maybe it's a a, a family member and we struggle. why, Why can't we just get along? But it's even more serious, really, if you think about it, when it's brothers and sisters in Christ. But we know there are times where we're going to struggle to, to get along. Sometimes it's just personality differences. We have different experiences in life, different things have gone on, and just you know, personalities are different. We kind of rub each other the wrong way. That, that happens. That's just natural. That, that's part of being human. But sometimes it's something far more serious than that. Sometimes even those who are Christians will do something that really bothers the other person and will wonder why can't we all just get along. But when it becomes something very serious, the picture changes from something funny to something more like this. Because when it becomes something serious, and maybe it's even a sin involved, you can feel kind of alone. You wonder where to turn. What what can we possibly do? On Sunday mornings this year, I haven't said this in a few weeks, but if if you're a member here, hopefully you remember. If you're you're a guest this morning, we're thankful you're with us. But on Sunday mornings this year, all of our sermons, when I preach or Tyler preaches, are, are coming from the words of Jesus. And a lot of what Jesus said, of course, is encouraging and uplifting. And there are other times, though, where Jesus deals with some matters that are very difficult, sometimes even gut-wrenching. And in Matthew chapter 18, in the text we read together a few moments ago, Jesus deals with just that circumstance. What happens when brothers and sisters in Christ don't get along? In fact, specifically, what happens when there is sin between Christians? We're calling our lesson this morning, Two or Three. And it's because of how this section ends. That famous verse in verse 20 where he said, Where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there with them. It's, it's a beautiful verse. And, but maybe it's one of the most misapplied verses in all the Bible. And I want to get to that in just a little while. I hope you have your Bible. And if you do, open to Matthew 18. And virtually everything we say is going to be found in that text. We're going to stick right in that text this morning because I want us to see the, the protocol that Jesus gives for when these difficulties arrive. Notice I didn't say if. They're, they're going to arise at times. We don't want them to arise because that means there's, there's sin involved. But we're people. All have sinned, right? We're going, to make, we're going to have difficulties. How do we handle it? First of all, this morning, before we get to the specific text, I want us to think about the context. Because the context of Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20 really matters. It seems that most of what happens in Matthew chapter 18 happens very rapidly. It may even be one lengthy conversation. If you look back up in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 1, you're going to notice that there is a question that is asked of Jesus. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, we know that question probably should not have been asked, but it's a natural question if you're thinking of the kingdom in just earthly terms. If it's going to be an earthly kingdom with an earthly king, then there's going to be kind of a hierarchy. You would think that way. 
But Jesus wants to dispel all of that. This is going to be a spiritual kingdom. And so you recall his answer basically is to bring a child and say the one who has the attributes like a child, that's the one who's the greatest in the kingdom. There's not a hierarchy here other than the fact that Christ is the head of this, he's the king of the kingdom. He's the head of the church. That begins this long discourse then about interactions between people, but also our interaction with sin. For example, in verse 6, Jesus says that it would be better to be thrown into the sea and drowned than to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch your influence is basically the idea there. He goes on to talk about in verse 7 through 9 how we need to carry our own weight in making certain that we stay away from those things that would cause us to sin. We remove them. We don't see how close to sin we can get and, and then try to deal with them. We, we stay away from it. So we, we guard our influence with other people by not causing them to sin, but we also concern ourselves with our own lives to make certain that I remove myself from tempting situations, if at all possible. But then in the immediate context, before we're studying this morning, I want you to notice what Jesus said in Matthew 18, beginning in verse 12. He said, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it, over the one that was found, more than over ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now why take the time to go all the way back up, you know, twenty verses earlier and go through the chapter? And why take the time to read the verses preceding what we're talking about? Remember what I said. Most of Matthew chapter 18 seems to be one context, one major discussion. And in the immediate context before our discussion, Jesus had just talked about one who goes astray and how heaven rejoices when that one returns. So what we're thinking about this morning in reality is the hard work of restoration. Most of us have seen this passage we read together a few minutes ago from Matthew 18, and we see in it this process, and we sometimes talk about this process as church discipline or withdrawing of fellowship, that sort of thing, and that is certainly involved. We'll get to that in just a moment, but we must keep the context in mind. The the process is not meant to just be a checklist. All of this deals with what if there is sin in the church family? What if there is sin between a brother or sister in Christ? It is not just I want to go through this process. It is I want a soul to be restored. That's what this is about. That's what Jesus had just finished talking about, and it's what he's still talking about. And as he begins our text, notice he talks about a conflict that's involved. Verse 15 begins, if your brother sins against you. That's a little bit jarring, isn't it? It's a little jarring because of that word brother. We're not just talking here about, you know, somebody who, you know, cuts you off in in a parking lot at Walmart and you get upset with them. It's not just that person that you were sitting by at a ball game a few weeks ago that you didn't know when they said something they shouldn't have said and it really hurts your feelings. If your brother sins against you, he is bringing this as close as, as he possibly can. This is a relationship between believers. And if that brother sins against you, this is the word, by the way, you've probably heard defined as missing the mark. It's also a word 
that carries with it the idea of causing an offense. All, all of those things are tied together in that word. By the way, it's the same word you'll see in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Same word. Okay? So what we're talking about here is not differences in personality. That's natural. It's not even the idea that someone just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. They looked at me wrong. It's, it's none of that. This is a brother or sister in Christ who has caused an offense because they have fallen short of the glory of God as it pertains to our relationship or their relationship with the church. That's what's going on. There is conflict involved. There is serious conflict. And so Jesus lays out for us, we're going to spend most of our time this morning, He lays out for us a course of action. And sometimes we look at this course of action, and as I said, we see it as a checklist. One-on-one, a couple of witnesses, the whole church withdrawal or removal of fellowship. We, we kind of see that as just a, a checklist. But the reason we took so much time a few minutes ago to lay out the context is to make certain we see this is not just about withdrawal of fellowship. It's not wanting to get to that end of things. The goal of all of this is restoration. The goal of each of these four steps in this course of action is restoration. Restoration of one who has sinned, but also restoration, hopefully, of a relationship of brother or sister in Christ. Step one is very private and very serious. Step one is you go and tell him his fault. You go and tell him his fault. But notice Jesus said, between you and him alone. And then he said beautifully, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. There's at least three things we've got to keep in mind from that one step in the process that make it very, very serious. The first is it's in private. We live in an everybody-has-to-know-everything-all-the-time world. And we live in a time where someone causes me an offense, someone sends me, so what am I? I'm going to tell everybody because somebody wronged me. I'm going to make sure I blab it all over town. I'm going to throw it on Facebook. I'm going to make sure everybody knows. Step one is you go privately to... You want to tell me this wouldn't change a whole lot of quote-unquote church politics? A lot of problems in the church? If we would just take step one, forget the other three steps for a moment. If we would just take step one, it is in private. But notice also that Jesus said, you tell him his fault. This is not a time to air every grievance you've ever had with a person. This is basically, if I may paraphrase, what Jesus basically meant was, you deal with the issue at hand. Notice fault is singular. You deal with that issue. You're working through that sin, that offense, if you want to use that, that terminology. And so it's very private, very specific. But notice again, Jesus uses the term brother. You still treat that person as if they're part of the family. Because they are. Have they sinned? Yes. Is there a problem? Yes. But this is not a time to try to hold something over somebody's head, treat them cruelly, run them down, railroad them, treat them. No, you go to them alone. You and him alone. You and her alone. And you talk about that fault, that offense. Sometimes that works. Praise God when it does. That conversation is not easy. It's never going to be easy because you're dealing with sin. You're dealing with a close relationship. But sometimes that works because the person didn't even realize they, they had sinned against you. Sometimes they, sometimes they did and they were just waiting for, for you to come to them. Sometimes they just needed to kind of be shaken up a little bit. But sadly, sometimes it doesn't. And so if it doesn't, Jesus then gives the second step, which becomes even more serious. Verse 16 begins, or is, But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence 
of two or three witnesses. You've gone to the person one-on-one, you've had this conversation, and for whatever reason, they've kind of turned you away, they've spurned you, they've said, I don't have a problem here. You don't then throw it to the whole world. You don't railroad the person. It's still very private. The concept, and what's going to be on the screen should really be reversed as the way we're going to talk about it. The concept of one or two witnesses is carried over from the Old Testament. You'll find very similar terminology in Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 6, as well as Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15, where in the Old Testament law, you took witnesses, two or three witnesses, to make certain of every charge in, in a case, a criminal case, to make certain that the facts were straight and to make certain that justice was being carried out in a proper way. Jesus brings that same concept over to this very serious conversation. It is not take two or three yes men. It is not round up two or three of your best buddies to go railroad the other person. Notice they're specifically called witnesses. And the reason that terminology is used is because they are to be a witness to all that's going on. Is there really a sin involved? That needs to be established, does it not? Or is it just my feelings got hurt? Is is this really dealing with restoration? Or are you trying to just railroad this person? That needs to be established. It could be elders. It could just be wise members of the congregation. But it's not just rounding up a posse to go destroy the person. Robert Mounts, in a commentary on Matthews, he's writing about this text, gives the reason. That's why I've got flip these on the screen. I apologize for that. He said the reason for this step is not to prove the other person's guilt, but to help in reconciliation. Remember, the goal is restoration. The goal is reconciliation. But notice it's still private. And sometimes this works. Praise God when it does. Because someone listens. They realize, you know what, there really is a problem here. And this person really does have my best interest at heart. And so do these who have come to help to make certain that what's going on here really is biblical and true and seeking restoration. Sometimes it works. But Jesus knows the human heart. And He knows that sometimes it won't. And so tragically, because there's a need for it, there's a third step. Step three begins in verse 17. And if he does not listen, tell it to the church. By the way, if you mark in your Bible, you may just want to make note of the fact the word church there is literally the word assembly because the church, as we know it, had not yet been established. Right? It was just two chapters earlier, Matthew 16, that Jesus said, On this rock I will build my church. That doesn't happen until Acts chapter 2. The word church just means assembly or the called out ones. Jesus is taking the, the concept in their minds of the Jewish assembly, and then we can place it forward to the New Testament church assembly. We know that because Paul will write about the same context, uh, same concept, I should say, more than once. But may I point something out here? Did you notice that it's not until now that this is public at all? How much of a problem do we have with that in our world? The first thing I want to do is tell everybody. But it is not until now that even the church, the assembly knows about it. This is the time where it becomes very serious, very difficult, and I may even use the term very controversial. Our world does not like this teaching. Our world doesn't like that Jesus said this. But it's only now that it becomes public at all. You you tell it to the church, Jesus said. Having taken witnesses, trying to restore the person, now it becomes public within the, the assembly, within the church. But the question becomes why? It's not to railroad the person. It's still seeking restoration. 
This person now needs all of his brothers, all of his sisters praying for him or her. This person now needs the church seeking to bring that person back, seeking to win that person back when I go talk to that person. Quite frankly, I really don't care who won the game last night or what's on sale at the store. I need to know that the church wants them back. The church needs them back. And they need to be back in with the assembly, part of that called out group. Jesus is making it clear that this is still seeking restoration, but it's very public. It sometimes works, but what if it doesn't? Tragically, there's step four. Jesus concludes verse 17. If he refuses to listen even to literally the assembly, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. To those who listened to Jesus on that day, when he used the phrase Gentile and tax collector, they knew what he meant because they would all have been Jews and they would have said, you mean like an outsider? That's exactly what it meant. Now, he wasn't saying they should have been treated, treating people differently just because they're Jew or Gentile or because they have a certain job like a tax collector. But he's saying that's what you do so you know how to treat people like an outsider. So that's how this should be treated. Wayne Jackson in his New Testament commentary says, The offender is to be excluded from social fellowship of the church, but notice it, for his own good. When Paul would later write about this same concept in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he would even go so far as to say in verse 11 of that chapter that you don't even eat with one who has, as we often say, been withdrawn from. But earlier in that same chapter, in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 5, he had said the purpose of all of this was so his soul may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's still restoration. We think, wait a minute, how in the world could that possibly work? If a church is a loving family, if a church has each other's back, if a church is growing in unity and strength, then if this ever happens... Don't you think the one who has been cut off, withdrawn from, don't you think they would wonder what they're missing? We don't see it happen very often. I've talked to some elders, though, at congregations who have gone through what we sometimes call withdrawal fellowship or church discipline. And by the way, I'm not a huge fan of calling it church discipline. I know it's just terminology. But discipline's not always negative. You know, one of the elders gets up here and tells us, you know, Great job last week in this, you know, this program. That's church discipline, is it not? Because they've positively reinforced something. I prefer withdrawal fellowship as the terminology. It doesn't make any difference. Just point that out. Discipline doesn't have to be bad all the time. But I've talked to elders who have gone through this very difficult process. And I've heard people say before, you know, well, this wouldn't work. The elders I've talked to at multiple congregations over three-quarters of the people who have been withdrawn from have come back because they knew what they were missing. They knew how serious it was. They knew that I'm not part of the life of that church. The church has to be loving and unified for it to work, and all have to take part for it to, to work. Now, I mentioned we're going to spend most of our time in this point, this course of action. Before we move out of this point, I want to take just a moment and think about a couple of questions. There, there, sometimes we talk about this, and you get a couple of common questions or a couple of, I won't say objections, but kind of, wait, wait, kind of wait a minute, right? Hang, hang on just a second, right? And the first question that sometimes comes up is, why don't we see this being done? I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'll be 40 this year. How about that? I said it. Before it even comes, I said it, okay? I have literally never seen it done. 
in a congregation where I have, you know, grown up, preached, whatever, okay? I've seen it done from afar. And I suppose there are as many different reasons as there are congregations and as there are situations. May I give you a couple, though, that seem to overarch why it's not done from time? And I'm talking about from step one. I'm not just talking about withdrawal of fellowship. I'm talking about even step one, where we go to the person privately and deal with it privately. I think one of the main reasons is we're scared. What will they think? What would somebody else say if they found out this was going on? Which, by the way, if it's private, it shouldn't. If it progresses further, what, what would the community think? I mean, they're already the most closed-minded church in town. Now they're cutting off their own members. What in the world, right? And in our modern world, I've heard elders, not here, but elders before say they're scared of being sued if this happens. When did fear become what drives the church? Christ gave a clear plan. And yes, it's difficult. We're going to deal with that in just a moment. But fear cannot be our driving force. I can't worry about what, what might happen. I think another reason sometimes is simply we've never done it before. Now, sometimes that little statement is used to, you know, kind of stop any kind of you know, change. I'm talking about biblical change, you know, and I promise this has not been talked about. This is just a made-up example. But if, if Ricky had gotten up here this morning and said, you know, the elders talked this morning and, and we're going to have services now on Sunday nights at, at 5 instead of 6. Okay, I promise they didn't talk about it. I'm making it up, okay? Total example. You know what the number one objection to that would be? I don't like it. Why? Because we've never done it before. That the number one objection. Now, when it comes to things like that, that don't really matter in the grand scheme of things, the Bible doesn't talk about what time on Sunday. It talks about having an assembly on Sunday or, you know, whatever. Should we have, you know, metal trays or wooden trays? Who cares? You know, that, that stuff, we haven't done this way before. Who cares? But, folks, when it comes to something Jesus specifically said, we've never done it that way is not an excuse. We talk all the time about how we are the church of the New Testament. We're simply trying to restore New Testament Christianity, right? That's our plea. We simply want to go back and be the church you read about in the New Testament. If that is true, then how can we avoid any teaching Jesus ever gave? Just because we've never done it before. May I suggest, even on an individual level, the one-on-one conversation part of this, maybe some more restoration needs to happen. We've got baptism down. (laughs) We've got the organization of church down. We've got the pattern of worship down. But if we're going to be the church you read about, there's some other things that need to be in place. Another question that sometimes comes up is, what if the person's already withdrawn themselves? I mean, there's a difficulty here. Maybe it's somebody who hadn't been to church in a long time, you know, and, well, now if we, you know, the elders came before us and said, you know, we're, we're going to do this and this, this person's involved. They've already withdrawn themselves. First of all, find that terminology in the New Testament. You're not going to find it. It's not there. You don't have the idea of someone withdrawing themselves. But I think the answer is this doesn't need to be something that takes forever. Did you notice when Jesus made this statement, if your brother sins against you, he did not say, wait eight or nine months and stew over it. When you finally get the nerve, go talk to him. He said, go to them. Don't sit and stew over it forever. Don't let it build and grow and, and cause, cause bitterness and, and other difficulties that lead to all kinds of problems. So that's the course. And I know it's difficult. We don't want to progress through it because it means there's sin and there's, there's sin that's not being repented of. And that's why the rest of the text is there. If you're listening this morning and you're going, 
This is not encouraging at all. I came to church to be encouraged. The rest of this context is what's encouraging. Because Jesus knows this is going to be a difficult conversation, a difficult process. And so in the next place, very briefly, he gives the confirmation. Did you notice some terminology that looks very familiar to a more famous passage? He said, whatever you bind on earth, you bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, you bound in Does that sound familiar to anybody else? Just two chapters earlier, as we have it recorded in the Bible, Matthew chapter 16, didn't he say the same thing to Peter? I tell you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell or Hades will not prevail against it. And whatsoever you bind on earth, you bound in heaven. And whatsoever you loose on earth, and we go, wait, wait a minute. What, what was Jesus talking about back then in Matthew chapter 16? He was basically telling Peter in Matthew chapter 16 that when you preach in the New Testament church, Acts 2, Acts 10, so on and so forth, that what you say will be what heaven has given you to say. Literally, the text is, we'll have already been bound in heaven. We'll have already been loosed in heaven. What does that have to do with Matthew chapter 18? What Jesus is saying is, when we, individually, congregationally, when we go through this process, if we can honestly say, I have sought restoration, I've done so prayerfully, I've not blabbed it to everybody, I've followed the protocol, heaven confirms the process. If somebody doesn't repent even if it goes so far as they're withdrawn from. Jesus is saying, as gut-wrenching as that might be, heaven confirms that if we follow the process. On the flip side of that is if we're following the process at any point along that course of action, one-on-one, all the way up up, up to uh, and including withdrawal of fellowship, if that person is restored, heaven confirms the restoration because that person has made it right with God, made it right with their fellow man. And so Jesus is providing confirmation. Do this process because heaven confirms it. But Adam, those are difficult conversations. You got that right. (laughs) I've told you before, confrontation is not my middle name. It's nowhere near my name. I hate it. And we're talking about, as I said, not differences in personality. We're talking about sin. We're talking about some of the hardest conversations we could ever have. How in the world can you possibly go to that person and have that conversation? Or if it progresses that far, how can you possibly take a witness or two with you and have that conversation? That's what Matthew 18, 20 is talking about. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Listen to me very, very, very carefully. Matthew 18 and verse 20 is not talking about having church in your hotel room on vacation instead of finding a local church to worship with. It's not what it's talking about. Not even remotely close. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 20 is not talking about staying home from worship because you don't like something the preacher said or a decision the elders made. And you know what Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together, I'm there with, so we'll just have church in our home. That's not what it's talking about. Matthew 18 and verse 20 is not an excuse for a preacher to get up at the end of a gospel meeting service or maybe the beginning of one where maybe the attendance is really down or a singing and maybe the attendance isn't good and go, well, you know, the attendance isn't as good this morning as we thought it'd be. But you know what Jesus said? Where two or three are... And somebody always amends that. What in the world are we doing? 
Folks, when we use that verse that way, we have stripped it of its power. This is one of the most powerful promises Jesus ever gave. And when we use it to have worship in our hotel room or to make some little joke about light attendance at some gospel meeting or some singing, we have stripped one of the great promises of Scripture. Jesus is saying when someone, a Christian, sins against you, and your heart is broken, and your stomach is churning, and nothing in you wants to go have that conversation. Jesus says, if you will go there by my authority, in my name, I'm right in the middle of that room with you. That's what he's talking about. Now, I hit that hard, I know. Not just to preach against the false way of using that context, but to preach for the positive way of using it. Because do you see the comfort found in it? I don't know anybody who wants to have this kind of conversation. And so Jesus ends one of the most difficult courses of action he ever gave with some of the most powerful words of comfort he ever gave. When you meet on his authority by his name in this situation, as it were, he's sitting across the table with you. How beautiful is that? Now, Anytime you preach a sermon on a text like this, there's probably somebody in the room who's going, all right, when are the elders going to make the announcement? How long ago are they asking to preach this sermon? The answer, never. Remember I told you our goal this year on Sunday mornings is just to preach the words of Jesus. The elders not asking me to preach this sermon. I have no one specific in mind, <laughs> no group of people specific in mind, and the elders didn't ask me to, to make sure I move this sermon up or something. We're simply preaching the words of Jesus. And not everything Jesus said is always just love one another and be happy all the time. Jesus also dealt with some most difficult things we will ever do. I wish he never had to give this teaching, don't you? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we all really did just get along and there was never any difficulty and everybody just smiled and loved one another and nobody ever... Besides personality difference, nobody ever offended anybody else. Don't you just wish that was the case? Of course we do. But we're human. And sometimes intentionally and sometimes unintentionally, we're going to offend one another. And so Jesus gives us the process to deal with it. Is it easy? Not in the least. Not even from step one is this easy. But may I suggest something to you? Doing it Jesus' way is a whole lot better than any other way and would solve so many problems if we would simply go to the person, deal with the issue, and try to restore their soul. And if that doesn't work, follow the rest of the course of action. And you may think, how in the world... Could Adam turn from that into an invitation? Because we always have to end with an invitation, right? The answer really is this. This whole lesson, as difficult as it is, and maybe as technical as it may seem at times, I understand that, is still a sermon all about restoration. And Jesus is in the restoring business. Jesus is in the business of taking those who are sinful at first and bringing them into a saved relationship. And then Jesus is in the business of those who are saved when they have difficulties, restoring those relationships and those souls again. That's what he's about. 
He tells us how to have a hand in that, and for that we're thankful. But the fact of the matter is, I have to make the decision to seek His forgiveness. Sometimes, those who aren't Christians need to seek to make certain they're following God's plan, always follow God's plan of how to be saved, to believe that He's Christ, to turn from sin, to confess Him as Lord, then be baptized, immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins. At that point, those sins are gone. You're restored to relationship with God. Sometimes as Christians, we still sin. We still make mistakes. Sometimes between a brother and sister, sometimes it's just a sin between us and God, a private sin that, or, or something that affects maybe just my family or something like that that maybe not anybody else knows about, but maybe, maybe I still want to come forward and, and have the church pray for me for forgiveness or just for strength and encouragement. Christ is in the restoring business. And so are we. So are we. Because I was outside of Christ until he saved me. And there have been times when I've walked off that path a little further than I should have. And Christ restored me. All of this really boils down to this. We want everybody in this room to go to heaven. That's what it boils down to. And whatever stands in our way, we want to get those things out of the way so that the path is clear and straight and we're all walking arm in arm toward glory together. And this morning, if you need to become a Christian for the first time or need as a Christian to be restored or encouraged to walk in greater faithfulness, we'd love nothing more than to assist you if you'll come while we stand together and sing.